Hello dreamers and welcome to this week's episode. Before we get started, I have a few quick notes about the show. This is an independent ad-free podcast, which means I depend solely on you, the listeners, to keep the show moving. And there are a couple of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts or whichever directory you get your shows on. You could recommend us in TrueGrime discussion groups, or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have an extra dollar or two a month, you can subscribe to the show's Patreon, and in doing so, you will gain access to dozens of exclusive, full-length episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. And you do not have to be subscribed to the 5 or $10 levels. Every subscriber gets a listen. If a subscription is something that you aren't interested in, but you would still like to make a contribution to me and the puppies, you can do so through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. I will have more thank yous next week. I was kind of in a hurry to get this recorded, so I didn't write them all down. So the reason why I'm doing this episode is because I conducted a poll in the Facebook discussion group and I asked what sort of cases that you wanted covered in the next episodes and you voted for some more unneighborly behavior. This was a case that I ran across around the same time as I saw the one that we did a couple of episodes back with that wacky psychologist in Florida, Holly with an eye. I do have a couple more bad neighbor cases out of the state of California, but I found this one to be somewhat disturbing and sad at the same time. And I don't think there's going to be much in this one that I can make fun of like we sometimes get to. So let's get started with this week's episode. Back towards the beginning when we first started. One of the earliest episodes of California Dreaming was the case of Diane Whipple. She was a lacrosse player and coach from San Francisco, California, who was mauled to death by her neighbors to Presa Canarios, named Bane, which means killer, slayer, murderer, or worker of death in Old English, and Hera, which was the female dog. The dogs didn't actually belong to Diane's neighbors, who were Marjorie Noller and Robert Noel. They belonged to a guy named Paul Schneider. There was an aside to the story that I didn't even really get into back when I covered that case, because at the time, when I was still new at hosting the show, I wasn't really prepared to talk about certain details. While I still often try to avoid getting too graphic or explicit, there are times when it does add depth and context to certain cases. I wanted to focus on Diane and what happened to her, and the thing that interested me the most was the complicated court proceedings that followed. In fact, if I had to say if there was a case that inspired me to start my own podcast, it would be this one. I had reached out to a couple of hosts of shows that I liked and I suggested this case, but nobody really seemed interested, at least not at the time. So after this podcast came to me in a dream, I knew that Diane's story would be one of the first that I intended to do. I just checked listen notes while I was writing this, and while there are several shows that have since covered Diane's story, we are still one of the first to have discussed this case. So this Paul Schneider guy... His nickname was, or is, Cornfed. So yeah, if you're thinking Schneider might be a white supremacist member of the Aryan Brotherhood, you're not wrong. I looked him up on the California Inmate Search website, 
And it is literally the first time that the prison, wherever he's being held at, isn't even listed. Seriously, that never happens. He's been in prison since September of 1986, serving out three life sentences. I found an article on mailmagazine.com where the headline read in part, The Unbelievable True Story of Bane the Nazi Hellhound, Cornfed, and the Dog Mauling Case. A homemade shiv fashioned from a soup ladle smuggled into court rectally is maybe the most normal part of this seemingly impossible tale. Before I get to the article, Marjorie Noller and Robert Noel were Schneider's defense attorneys. When he went to prison, Noller and Noel, who were married, offered to look after his dogs. I guess indefinitely, unless they thought that they were going to somehow get Schneider out of prison. They were a pair of large dogs in the Mastiff family called Presa Canarios. Adult males weigh between 100 to 140 pounds, and that's 45 to 63 kilograms. And adult females are between 85 to 120 pounds, or 38 to 54 kilograms. Those dogs don't exactly seem meant for an apartment or a condo that's on an upper level of a building, like where Noller and Noel lived. I have an apartment with no yard, and my dogs combined don't weigh as much as one of those Presa Canarios do, and they're annoying if they don't get exercised. I can't imagine having two 100-plus pound dogs in my place. It just seemed to me like it was a bad idea from the start, and as it turned out, Diane Whipple was a neighbor who lived in the same building and on the same floor as Noller and Noel and their two dogs. So it all started apparently with what the Mel Magazine article said was a shit-stained soup ladle hidden in the ass of an incarcerated white supremacist named Cornfed Snyder. He fashioned his razor-sharp shiv from the ladle and hid it inside himself before a court date where he was scheduled to testify. At some point while in court, he managed to get his ladle shiv, and he attacked a defense attorney. Authorities determined that the manner in which Schneider smuggled the shiv into the court was because of an examination of the stab wounds. And I'm so sorry, dreamers, this is gross, but the stab wounds were infected. That's all I'm going to say. The evidence was in and around the stab wounds. Schneider, of course, was charged with the stabbing, but he was willing to plead guilty if in exchange he could have two pepperoni pizzas and a two liter of Pepsi as a reward for saving the court time and money in prosecuting him for the stabbing. I guess I'm kind of surprised that the court agreed because they got him his pizzas and his soda, but what he ended up doing next was suing the Department of Corrections for overly x-raying him following the shiv incident and he won his lawsuit i tried looking it up but the only lawsuit that i found online involving schneider versus the department of corrections was when he sued them for not paying him interest on the money that was deposited onto his books 
and that would have been his winnings from his lawsuit. So clearly this guy is finding ways to pass time while in prison. And at the time, Schneider had become known as one of the most dangerous men in prison to a point where they weren't really even wanting to transport any Aryan Brotherhood inmates to court anymore. So anyway, Schneider won his lawsuit and he received $11,666.66. And like I said, I guess that money goes on to his books in prison, which is why he wanted it to start earning interest, I guess. So he saw this ad in Dog Fancy magazine about breeding Canarios. And he decided to start his own dog breeding, dog fighting, Mexican mafia meth lab guard dog business. He had a girlfriend on the outside, some Mormon woman named Janet Coombs, who was apparently crazy in love with Schneider. And she was willing to help him run his business. The first stud that Schneider purchased was a Presa Canario he named Bane. The article that I read about this stated, they are massive animals bred by Spaniards as work dogs who herd bulls. Unlike sheepdogs, Canarios run up to a bull, bite its lip or ear, and then drag the bull down to the ground by its face. At some point, Schneider acquired the female Canario and named her Hera. However, the dogs ended up killing all of Janet's sheep, chickens, and her cat, so she didn't want to take care of them any longer. The dogs ended up in the care of Schneider's attorneys, Noller and Noel. It was on January 26, 2001, when all this bizarre information about Schneider, Noller, and Noel began coming to the surface because that was the day that Bain and Hera attacked and killed Diane Whipple who was just a few days away from turning 34 years old. And it happened in the hallway of the apartment building where she lived down the hall from Noller and Noel. In the days following Diane's death, Noller, who was 45 years old at the time, and Noel, who was 59, began the process of adopting Schneider, who was 38 years old. While looking for evidence related to Diane's mauling, Snyder's prison cell was searched, and among the things discovered were materials depicting sex acts involving either Noller or Noel and the dogs. So it was a little bit nonspecific as to what exactly it was, but you get the gist of it. In a letter that was also found among Snyder's things from Noel, he had written to him about what had happened, stating in part, as soon as the elevator doors opened at six, one of our newer female neighbors, a timorous little mousy blonde who weighs less than Hera, is met by the dynamic duo exiting and almost had a coronary. Noller was the one there at the time, as she described Diane as staring the dogs down in disgust. Diane and several other neighbors had made complaints about the large dogs being kept in the apartment prior to the mauling. The dogs had been there for about three months. Noller attempted to hold the dogs back, but it was difficult since they were so big and powerful. According to Noller, Diane was the aggressor. Yeah, the woman smaller than the female Presa Canario is the one acting aggressively towards the dogs. Noller said that in this confrontation, Bane dragged her over towards Diane while she was unlocking her door. She said Diane yelled at her that she wasn't controlling her dogs 
and that they jumped on her. Noller said that an argument ensued about the dogs, which became quite heated. She said that she was trying to protect her dogs from Diane because she was acting so aggressively by attempting to shove her into her own apartment. But according to Noller, Diane refused to be pushed around and continued to be aggressive towards her and the dogs. Noller said she tried to get Diane to go into her apartment and asked her to close the door so she could bring her dogs out into the hallway, but Diane refused to go into her apartment and screamed at Noller, F you, I'm not shutting my door. And that's when, as Noller put it, Diane and the dogs got into it. Now, Janet Coombs said that when she gave the dogs over to the care of Noller and Noel, she warned them that they are basically bloodthirsty all the time. But the two of them expressed no concern over what Janet was telling them. So the dogs that were trained to take bulls down by their faces are living just a couple of doors down from Diane. Neighbors heard the attack. Several of them called 911. One witnessed it through their peephole. Another called thinking that somebody was being raped. It was just a matter of minutes before all of the screaming and chaos suddenly stopped and there was nothing but silence in the hallway. Police arrived about seven minutes later to find a naked and bloody Diane laying near death in the hallway. She and her clothing had been shredded by the dogs. Blood was splattered on the walls in the hallway and pools of blood had soaked into the carpeting. Diane passed away shortly thereafter at the hospital. Her autopsy revealed that she died of multiple traumatic injuries and extensive blunt force trauma, resulting in a loss of one-third of her blood. There were a total of 77 discrete areas of injury that covered Diane from head to toe. The most significant injuries were the ones to her neck. She had three deep lacerations which penetrated into the tissue and muscle, damaging her jugular vein, her carotid artery, and crushed her larynx typical of what a predatory animal does when it mauls its prey. She also had deep penetrating wounds to her head, face, a laceration on the back of her head, penetrating injuries around her mouth, lacerations on her forehead, and through and through lacerations to her ears, a large laceration to her right shoulder, inside left thigh, contusions on her right buttock, right upper thigh area, a large contusion to her right breast, a large penetrating laceration to her elbow and biceps. She also had numerous other pattern injuries, abrasions, contusions, and lacerations on every other part of her body, both arms, both legs, upper torso, front and back. At one point, Noller and Noel accused Diane's menstrual cycle of setting the dogs off. However, Diane was not menstruating at the time that she was killed. Noller, on the other hand, had three injuries a one-inch cut to her hand, a smaller cut to her right index finger, and a bruise forming near her right eye. Based on the observations of the injuries to her hand, they appeared to be consistent with having been caused by the yanking of a leash as opposed to a dog bite. Marjorie Noller was calm, she complained of no other injuries, and she never once asked about Diane's condition, nor did she ever dial 911 once she got the dogs into her apartment. Animal Control requested that Noller turn both of the dogs over to be euthanized, and while she agreed to surrender Bane, she refused to surrender Hera. A later examination of both dogs' teeth and Diane's wounds found that both of the dogs had bitten her. 
Even though Noller said that she would turn Bane over, she said that she couldn't help them with that because she could not control him. He was in the bathroom and he was pacing around. Animal control shot him three times with tranquilizer darts, but they did not work. They had no effect on him. They ended up slipping two come-along poles around his neck and led him out of the apartment with two other officers following closely with their guns drawn and pointed at him. They got him into the vehicle without further incident and he was subsequently euthanized. At the time, he was 140 pounds or 63 kilograms. As I said, Diane was rushed to the hospital. It was amazing that she was still alive when the paramedics got there. However, because of the massive blood loss, it was too much for her to overcome, and she died after going into cardiac arrest. In an article about this case that was featured in the New York Times, several officers who responded to the scene had to seek counseling because of the trauma they experienced from what they witnessed in the hallway of the apartment that day. So, Noller and Noel's son, Schneider, he had gone to prison in 1985 for robbing the armored car guards who regularly picked up the deposits from the grocery store where he worked at at the time. He made away with around $100,000. He purchased a new motorcycle and he had gone to show it off to his mom and his stepdad. And his stepdad was certain that Schneider was the one who robbed the supermarket so he contacted the police and had him arrested. Schneider was subsequently convicted and sent to Folsom State Prison, and that's when he began gaining his reputation for being one of the most dangerous members of the Aryan Brotherhood, which has members both in and out of prison, but was formed inside San Quentin. Schneider was considered so dangerous that when he was transported to court, the Golden Gate Bridge was shut down by the CHP while they were getting him across. In order to become a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, he had to stab a prison guard in the neck, which he did, and for that, Schneider was sentenced to life in prison. And from there, he was transferred to the prison in California, known for housing the most dangerous criminal offenders, Pelican Bay, which is where I thought he might be when I looked him up on the inmate search, but it wasn't listed. It was in 1990 when Schneider stabbed that attorney with the sloop ladle shiv, for which he got a second life sentence. And in 2003, two years after Diane's death, Schneider arranged for the murder of a deputy sheriff, and that's when he received his third life sentence. When Schneider arranged for Bain and Hera to be placed in the care of his attorneys, everybody in the building who had once enjoyed living in a place that featured such an incredible view of the San Francisco Bay and the Golden Gate Bridge they were all terrified of the two dogs. Whenever anyone saw them or even had the guts to try and allow the dogs to sniff their hand or to even attempt to pet them, there was just so much tension that both of them, but Bane in particular, gave off. They both often attempted to lunge at others and people did what they could to avoid crossing paths with them. But it was no matter to Noller and Noel. They just absolutely adored the dogs, apparently too much considering the photos that Schneider had in his prison cell. After Bane and Hera were euthanized, Noller and Noel felt as if their own children had been killed. 
which was the reasoning behind their decision, apparently, to adopt Schneider. And Noller did not admit to what was depicted in the pictures with the dogs. She did admit to sending nudes of herself to her client slash son. And in an interview with Rolling Stone, based on the way that she was talking about Bane, it's not even worth repeating, but it was weird. So most of the details that I've discussed up to this point about Diane's case were not included in my original episode. Like I said, I wanted to focus mainly on the court case and Diane. And I'm still amazed at what happened and is continuing to happen to this day. Because you see, Marjorie Noller was convicted of second-degree murder in a trial which was moved all the way down to Los Angeles because of the press coverage in the Bay Area. She was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. Noel was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter and was sentenced to three years in prison. The weird thing was is that Noller was also convicted of the involuntary manslaughter. And because of that, Noller was later granted a new trial and she was resentenced to four years in prison for the involuntary manslaughter charge. Both of them had their licenses to practice law suspended. Now, this is where Noller's case got complicated. She was found guilty of second-degree murder, but she was granted a new trial on that charge, and the reasoning behind it was that the judge felt the standard for that conviction required Noller knowing that taking the dogs out into the hallway involved a high probability that a death would occur. However, what my understanding of this was that when she was convicted of both second-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter, which by definition she could not be convicted of both because they are mutually exclusive, the new trial was ordered for the second-degree murder conviction and the judge imposed a sentence of four years for the involuntary manslaughter conviction for her to be serving while they waited for the retrial. The state ended up filing an appeal in this decision wanting the second-degree murder conviction reinstated. Meanwhile, both Noller and Noel finished up their sentences for the involuntary manslaughter convictions and were released on parole. However, Noller was to remain free on bail while the appeal for the second-degree murder charge was still ongoing. A year later, in 2005, the judge that granted the new trial for Noller that decision was reversed, which effectively reinstated her 15 years to life sentence. However, in 2007, the California Supreme Court rejected the appeals court decision, agreeing with the first order to remand the case back to the trial court to allow for the reconsideration of whether or not to let that conviction stand under their legal reasoning. In 2008, Noller's second degree murder conviction was reinstated and she was sentenced once again to 15 years to life, even though she had already been convicted of involuntary manslaughter for the mauling death and had served that sentence out. She was remanded back into custody and sent to prison. Okay, so Noller appealed some more, but in 2010, the appellate court upheld the conviction. Then the California Supreme Court refused to hear any more about it. In 2015, Noller appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals, but they again upheld her conviction in 2016. In February of 2019, Noller was up for parole for the first time, but she was denied. 
The reason cited was her prison record, which listed a misdemeanor assault conviction for attacking a guard while she was receiving medical treatment. She was up for parole again in January of 2022, but it has been delayed for 11 months, so it will be coming up again soon, according to the hearing results listed on the Department of Corrections website. So yeah, I find it kind of incredible that Marjorie Noller, who is now 67 years old, is still in prison today for the dog mauling. When I mathed it, it brought her total number of years in prison for both charges to 18 years. But she did earn another conviction while in jail for attacking that guard, but it was a misdemeanor, so I'm not really feeling confident that Noller still being in prison is the right thing to be happening today. As for her husband, Robert Noel, he died on June 22nd, 2018 at a nursing home in La Jolla, California on his 77th birthday. After he got out of prison, he found a job in a bakery in Fairfield, California. However, he began experiencing some pretty serious health problems that no longer enabled him to work. He ended up living in a van. I don't know where exactly. Maybe it was down by a river. He eventually found himself in a nursing home where he died two years later. In the case that we're going to discuss today, it involves a number of similar themes, but with a very different outcome. So let's get into the subject of today's 237th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Cat Lady. The backdrop of our story today is the city of Dayton, Ohio. It's been five years since we did a vacation episode in the Buckeye State. Back in 2017, we covered the Cleveland kidnapper, Ariel Castro. And as a bonus alongside that, I covered the disappearance of Patty Atkins after she left her job in Marysville, Ohio, which is a disappearance that is still annoyingly unsolved. She's been gone for 21 years now, but... I still check once in a while to see if anything has changed, but there's nothing new. Anyway, I am excited to be back in Ohio, though I still plan on making it to every other state in the Union. It's just sometimes a case just jumps out at me, and this is one of them. When the Great Recession hit at the end of 2007, most people were impacted by job loss, especially in certain industries construction, manufacturing, and the steel and automobile industries. Those are the ones that were hardest hit in the areas of the United States that fall into what is known as the Rust Belt, which is to some kind of a disparaging way of describing this particular part of our country. Hard times really hit the area beginning in the 1980s after it had really peaked in the four decades prior to that. For those of you outside of the United States, this refers to the manufacturing sector of the country that cuts across in a southwesterly section of the United States beginning in New York to Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, Indiana, the lower peninsula of Michigan, northern Illinois, and ending in the northeastern sections of Wisconsin, with industries that, in addition to steelmaking and auto manufacturing, also include coal mining. Some cities were hit harder than others. 
In an article that I read on NBCNews.com back in 2011, it listed 10 cities that would take at least a decade to recover from the Great Recession, and Dayton was one of them. From the 10, it went from Canton, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, South Bend, Indiana, Youngstown, Ohio, Atlantic City, New Jersey, Toledo, Ohio, Hickory, North Carolina, Detroit, Michigan, Flint, Michigan, and Reno, Nevada. So yeah, the Midwest was hit hard. Ohio is hit the most. Our story takes place from about 2012-ish, maybe 2011, into 2014 in Dayton. So it was still very much in the midst of recovering from the recession. However, the woman at the center of our story today is Dayton, Ohio resident Klonda Ritchie. And she was seemingly unaffected by the onset and the aftermath of the recession. The neighborhood that she lived in, where she owned her home, was described as unique, quirky, eclectic, and Klonda was kind of the same, unique, quirky, and eclectic. She was a lifelong resident of Dayton, which is technically a big city, but was still able to pull off that small town feel. And this was particularly true of the street where Klonda lived. She loved her home. She kept it up well inside and out. She was very, very proud of it, and it showed. And Klonda herself was very well put together. She was attractive, and her close inner circle of friends and family, they knew not to be fooled by that because she was a tough lady, strong and independent. She was single. She did not have any children of her own, but she worked at the Department of Children's Services. And being single and having no children didn't mean Klonda lived alone. Her house was full of cats. Like most of us, she was a big, huge animal lover. She volunteered at the Humane Society of Dayton, and whenever a kitty needed a home or was sick and needed a rehab, Klonda took them in. In fact, Klonda had taken in so many cats in need that her own house was becoming overrun by them. And you know how there are some of us, if you ever get asked the question, what would you do if you ever won the lottery? And we say something like we're going to buy some land or buy a farm and operate an animal rescue. Well, Klonda one-upped all of us and purchased a second home a few houses down from hers. And it was to be a house just for her cats. Yep, she did that. The cats had their very own house. Every day, Klonda would get up before dawn and take care of the cats. She'd go to their house, feed them breakfast. The litter box was actually a litter kiddie pool that was down in the basement. She'd take care of that, and then she would be off to work for the day. The cats weren't the only ones hanging out with Klonda, though. She had rekindled a relationship with a man named Doug Yankee. They'd been together some 20 years earlier, but had gotten back in touch and started seeing one another again. Things had become serious, and while he didn't live at Klonda's place full-time, he was there a lot. So Klonda's life was very full, very busy, and very fulfilling. In speaking of Klonda, Doug would say it was as if they had picked up right where they had left off. She was as vibrant and full of life, if not more so, than when they were first dating. And among all of the things that Klonda was and had accomplished in her life, she'd also been a dance teacher. Even a guy like Doug, who had two left feet, was able to pick up a few decent moves. And one of the most important things about Doug 
was his willingness and desire to help Klonda take care of all her cats. Now, I always don't speak so glowingly about people on our cases, even the victims. I mean, you know, not everybody can light up a room, right? But I'm not going to get all cliche on you here, but it seemed like if there was a person that if you were close to her, if you had a close relationship with her and you were within her inner circle, she would be that person who could illuminate an area enclosed by four walls, a ceiling and a floor. In all of her 50 plus years, this time in Klonda's life was turning out to be the happiest that she had ever been. Next door to Klonda's place was a home that was vacant. There were several houses on her block that were empty because, as I mentioned a moment ago, Dayton was hit hard by the recession, houses were left abandoned, and things were slowly getting back to normal. So Klonda's cats were able to go in and out of the empty house next door where they tended to play or hide or rest, you know, whatever cats do. While the recovery from the recession was a slow process, it was evident that things were beginning to look up as new neighbors slowly began filling up those once abandoned homes. The people who purchased the home next to Klonda's were a couple, Andrew Nason and Julie Custer. I'm not exactly sure when they moved in, but I believe it was sometime in mid-2011. That house next door had become pretty run down, so the price was lowered and Julie and Andrew quickly snapped it up. Julie was a registered nurse and Andrew was in sales, non-specific sales. They had three children. The oldest was a teenager. The youngest was still an infant. And that was the main reason why they had been looking for a bigger place, since the family was still growing. Neighbors described the couple as your average everyday people, generally nice. That was the initial impression. It was a positive one as far as Klonda and all the other neighbors could tell. They were very family oriented, as it was evident that they both wanted to work hard and provide and care for their young children. And what really won Klonda over was the fact that like her, they were animal lovers, as Julie and Andrew also had a couple of puppies. So yeah, the house came with a yard and that was something that they really needed for both the kids and the puppies. It made Klonda and the other neighbors happy to see things turning around for the better for their neighborhood, to see new faces and new people coming in and setting down roots for their neighborhood to thrive once again. Little by little, one by one, the houses were filling up with families. And despite that, the quaint little street that they lived on and enjoyed seemed to stay pretty peaceful and serene. That was the general vibe that everybody had. Peacefulness. But that didn't really last too long once Andrew and Julie got moved in and settled. They began having guests over. Lots of them. All hours of the night several nights a week. There'd be people coming and going, music blasting so loud that you can almost feel it thumping in your chest. It also made the cats and Klonda anxious. But rather than make things awkward by going over there to complain, Klonda and Doug would just go out for the evening to get away from Andrew and Julie's pounding music and loud guests. And just like that, the once peaceful neighborhood was no more. And it wasn't just the party guests and the music. Andrew owned a couple of all-terrain vehicles, but instead of taking them out to the countryside or out 
by the lake maybe. I don't know where people in the Midwest ride around on ATVs, but in California and Nevada, obviously, it's a thing you do when you go out to the desert. But not Andrew Nissen. He rides his ATVs up and down the street that he lived on, and it was not pleasant to hear him rumbling by on that thing. Of course, with him living next door, not only did Klonda have to hear it rumbling up and down the street, she and the cats had to listen to him fire it up and rev it in her driveway right next to her house because he needed to use her driveway in order to get his vehicles parked in his own backyard. And it almost felt like he was doing it on purpose sometimes, often starting the thing up early in the morning. Even though Klonda did get up early on the weekdays, she was now unable to enjoy sleeping in on the weekends anymore. Of course, every single time, those ATV engines startled her cats too. Prior to Andrew and Julie moving in, Klonda's cats used to hang out and play in and around their house and in their yard. And when it came to their backyards, there was no fence separating them, just a flower bed. So the cats came and went from the two yards. But now with Andrew and his family living there, you know, the cats hadn't really stopped playing around in both yards. And in the yard is where Andrew parked his ATVs. He began noticing that the cats were leaving some scratches on them. And so he complained to Klonda and he wanted her to keep her cats out of his yard. She apologized and tried explaining to him that their home had sat empty for so long and that her cats were just used to going in and out of his yard. But since he was there now that the cats would figure it out, just shoo them away and eventually they'll stop wandering over there. But Andrew really wasn't satisfied with that answer. He felt like Klonda wasn't doing enough about the cats, that she had too many of them, that they were out of control. He was pretty bent out of shape over it, and I can kind of understand that. I lived in a neighborhood where there were tons of feral cats and a random raccoon that seemed to think it was a cat. And they hung out in the bushes at various people's houses, and the neighbors hated the cats being around all the time. But there wasn't anything anyone could do about it. They would be trapped, spayed or neutered, and released back to the neighborhood. I don't think the cats that Klonda had in her yard and in that house that she bought up the street were for feral cats. Maybe some of them may have been, but she mostly took in cats and kittens from the Humane Society. And they kind of just stayed, you know, like how cats do. They are sort of the ones that pick you and pick your house. But for Klonda and Andrew, the issue over the cats is where everything started to turn sour between the two of them. To be fair, Andrew wasn't alone in how he felt about the cats. There were several other neighbors who described Klonda as feeling like she had been there for so long, some 25 years or so, that she could just have the cats if she wanted. She purchased a house down the street just for them, and that the neighborhood belonged to her and the cats just as much as anybody else, and she was quite unapologetic about it. Her logic was that the cats weren't the problem, it was anybody who had issues with animals and caring for animals, they're the ones with the problem. So at some point, animal control showed up following a report that somebody called in about the house that Klonda had purchased for the cats. Coincidentally, it was just days after Andrew confronted Klonda about the cats going into his yard and leaving scratch marks on his ATV. The animal control officer had a notation in their report 
that Quanda had a kiddie pool in the basement with litter in it, which was a thing that only really she and Doug knew about, so they thought. So they both suspected that it was Andrew who contacted Animal Control and filed a complaint about the cats. However, after speaking to Klonda and taking a look around the house and seeing how well kept and clean it was, considering that there were so many cats in there, the animal control inspector made the determination that the conditions were satisfactory and there was really nothing wrong with the manner in which Klonda was keeping her cats. This would not fly where I live now, nor would it fly where I lived in Southern California. You are limited in the number of cats that can be kept in a dwelling. Animal control would have seized all of those cats and hopefully tried to foster or adopt them out. And as far as I can see, Dayton, Ohio is no exception. But if I had to guess, I'd say the reasons why animal control chose to look the other way may have been because the cats were being pretty well cared for and they really didn't want to have to deal with the removal of dozens of cats since they weren't living in deplorable conditions and the animal shelters were likely overcrowded as it was. And perhaps also because Klonda was a county employee and a volunteer at the Humane Society, so they simply decided to let it slide. But the visit from Animal Control did cause Klonda to suspect Andrew was behind the initiation of the visit, which only added to Klonda's already existing aggravation over his loud music, the late night guests, and the early morning ATV rides. Another thing that also bothered Klonda was the way that Andrew was keeping and taking care of his dogs. They were puppies still, and they were almost always tied up outside. She would hear them howling and crying, and she would go out there to find that they were without food and water. And then there was one day in particular when Klonda just couldn't take all of the whining, and from her window she could see that they had tipped over one of Andrew's trash cans and were digging around in the bags for food. So she brought them something to eat. And just as she was watching them eat the food and petting them, Andrew pulled up in the driveway with his ATV and yelled at Klonda, What the hell do you think you're doing? Those are my dogs. Leave them alone. And she tried to explain that his dogs were hungry and she saw them eating garbage, to which Andrew told her, Never, ever feed my dogs again and he got off his ATV he got in her face and he asked her what is wrong with you she tried telling him that she only wanted to help and he yelled back at her if you want to help get off my property and from there things between Klonda and Andrew only worsened from what I could tell prior to Andrew moving in it seemed like the other neighbors who lived close by just sort of tolerated Klonda and her cats just to keep the peace. It was like they didn't want all of these cats roaming around everywhere, but they got this feeling that Klonda acted like the cats were free to roam the world as they saw fit and everybody else just had to deal with it. But once the tensions between Klonda and Andrew began growing and the neighbors were becoming aware of it, they started to take his side. Slowly but surely, Klonda could tell that she was getting the cold shoulder from everybody. Well, at the same time, they had all warmed up to Andrew. As aggressive as he was towards Klonda, he was the exact opposite with everybody else. 
friendly, social, welcoming, always willing to help whenever needed. And whenever Andrew was visiting with anyone or chatting with a neighbor out in front, Klonda could tell that they were turned against her. Now, like the episode on Patreon that we covered last month with the feuding neighbors in Lompico, California, Walter Stevens and Bob Hall, their story had a driveway issue. And in this case here with Andrew and Klonda, they also had a driveway issue. In case you're not a patron, the problem with the driveway involved a new neighbor, Walter Stevens, and it was his driveway, and the debate was whether or not it was his private property, which Walter was led to believe that it was when he purchased his house. Or was it public land, which Bob insisted it was, based on some old maps of the land that were no longer valid technically, but apparently showed the driveway as being a public road called Lilac Lane. Bob needed to drive on that driveway in order to access the upper portions of his own property, which hadn't been a problem until Walter purchased the house and began questioning Bob's claims that his driveway was public land, and from there, the feuding escalated. It turned out that Klonda and Andrew had a driveway thing too. She had been letting Andrew drive his ATV up her driveway in order to park them behind his house. Even when the tension and animosity between the two of them began growing, she still allowed it. However, following the confrontation about Klonda feeding his dog, it was shortly after that that Andrew rolled up the driveway on his ATV and ran right over the flower bed, flattening and ruining the whole thing. And she told him, you've destroyed my flowers. And he claimed that they were on his property. Klonda insisted that they were on her property and that she had been tending to the flower bed for more than two decades. Andrew brushed her off and shrugged and said, accidents happen. She didn't think it was an accident at all, considering they had just had a blow up about her feeding his dog. And then this happens. It wasn't an accident and it wasn't a coincidence. Klonda had spent so much time tending to her garden and really keeping up her home that it was upsetting to her that Andrew in just one split second flattened her flowers and walked away without a care in the world. And from there, things continued to get worse. The next incident involved one of Andrew's dogs again. Klonda was in her home and she could hear a dog whining and barking incessantly. And when she looked outside, the dog was chained up. But something was agitating it, so it kept barking and barking until finally Andrew emerged from the home to deal with it. While Klonda didn't see what happened because she ducked inside when she realized Andrew was coming out, but from what she could hear, she was certain that Andrew was beating the dog. Just the sounds of it, the dog crying out, Andrew ordering the dog to shut up. She was sure that he was abusing it. So she contacted animal control and within a day they were knocking on his front door this time. But after knocking repeatedly and not getting any answer, all the animal control officer could do was leave a notice on the door. The fact was in order for Andrew to receive a citation for cruelty to animals, they had to actually see abuse or evidence of the abuse. So a note for the homeowners to contact animal control was left. And as soon as the officer drove away, Andrew did emerge from his house. He took the note off the door. Klonda was on her porch watering some of her plants, and once he read the note, he glared over at Klonda. He didn't say anything, 
He ripped up the note and went back into his house, slamming the door behind him. The following day, Klonda came home from work to find that someone had ripped apart her entire garden. Plants were yanked out of the ground and her flowers and bushes were all shredded up. Of course, Klonda believed that this was an act of retaliation due to the visit from animal control at Andrew's house. It had only been a day. She knew Andrew was responsible for this. In order to try and broker some peace between Klonda and Andrew, her boyfriend Doug went over to his house to see if he could try and talk to him for Klonda. He was hoping that he might be able to somehow solve this problem that they had because he didn't want it to continue to get worse, but Andrew refused to answer the door. This conversation that Doug was hoping to have never took place, and the problems between Klonda and Andrew continued to mount. I mentioned earlier that Andrew and Julie had three children, the eldest being a teenager about around the age of 13 or so. His name was Dylan. It turned out that Andrew may have started to recruit Dylan to begin helping him in his war against Klonda, and Klonda took notice. Being that she worked for the Department of Children and Family Services, she already had a level of concern based on what she observed in their father, his overall disposition, his treatment of animals, it was very concerning. One afternoon, Klonda came out of her house to take out some garbage when she found a dead squirrel in a box placed in the middle of her driveway. It's a very thing about Pam thing to do, right? If you saw the Dateline Hulu series on Pam Hupp, portrayed by Renee Zellweger, this was a stunt that Pam was depicted as having done to her elderly neighbor, which is something that I believe was made up for the sake of the TV series, though neighbors did say that weird stuff started happening after the Hups moved into the neighborhood. Anyway, the dead squirrel in the box did happen to Klonda, and she took it as an ominous and serious threat, one that she felt was aimed directly at her own pets. And Klonda also believed that it was Dylan, their son, who did it, or it was Andrew who put him up to doing it, because she caught a glimpse of Dylan peering out from his window as she discovered the dead squirrel. Klonda did not take the offering lightly. She took it as a threat against her personally, as well as all of her cats, and those cats meant the world to her, and she would protect them at all costs. So Klonda decided that the best way to protect herself and her cats was to go ahead and make her backyard enclosed by having a chain-link fence built that would hopefully prevent them from going into Andrew's yard and being at risk of being harmed by him or his son. If they could kill a squirrel, they could kill a cat, she figured. So Doug went ahead and put the fence up for Klonda. And while her kitties might be safer and kept out of the neighbor's yard, the only thing that the fence seemed to do for Andrew was to make him even more pissed off at Klonda than he was before. On October 7, 2011, Klonda arrived home from work to find that her home had been completely ransacked, turned upside down. She called Doug and told him that someone had broken into her house, that she was missing a bunch of jewelry and some electronics, and the next call she made was to the Dayton police. They arrived at her home to take a report, and one of the responding officers informed Klonda that a neighbor actually witnessed someone coming and going from her house earlier in the day. 
When she asked for a description of the person, it was vague, but it also fit the general description of her neighbor, Andrew. She couldn't be sure, but she was sure. Again, this was too much to be only a coincidence. So Klonda, she kind of did what Holly with an eye did a couple of episodes back by getting on the computer and seeing what she could find out about Andrew's background, if he had a criminal past. And it turned out that he did. A total of at least 19 charges on his record and numerous convictions for drug-related offenses, robbery, assault, things dating back to 2005. So now Klonda was even more afraid of her neighbor now that she had gone digging around in his past. She was very upset and unhappy to find out all of this information. I mean, it's kind of her bad for poking around in the first place, but I guess it's better to know if you don't mind giving up your peace of mind. If you really want to ruin your day, then you look around on the internet to find out about your neighbors and check the sex offender registry in your zip code, right? Anyway, the problems between Klonda and Andrew continued to fester. In order to try and further protect her home, Klonda had four cameras installed outside, and three of them were trained towards the side of her house that was next to Andrew's property. It was a system designed to store copious amounts of data to ensure that if anything happened, it would all be preserved. Needless to say, Andrew was not happy to see those cameras pointed towards his property and he demanded that she better not point any of those cameras in his direction. And all she had to say was, you really shouldn't have anything to worry about, should you? Andrew clapped back with an acquisition of his own. Two new dogs. Unlike the cute puppies that Andrew and Julie moved in with, those were gone. These were adult dogs. Big ones. And like the Presa Canarios that we discussed at the opening of this episode, the new dogs were also in the Mastiff family of breeds. They were a pair of Cane Corsos. According to GreatPetCare.com, the Cane Corso is an Italian Mastiff that was bred to hunt large game and today is used as a guard dog. It is slightly smaller than the Presa Canario, but not by much, and it is more agile and athletic than most other Mastiffs but it is still massive in size, height, and weight. It is a complex breed that was specifically created for hunting and guarding. It has a massive head, a heavy rectangular body, and is not appropriate for an inexperienced dog owner. The Cane Corso is large, muscular, powerful, intelligent, active, and headstrong. It is loyal to its family, but demonstrates affection in ways that aren't as obvious as other dogs. It will want to be near you, but is not as demanding for attention or physical touch. And even with proper socialization, the cane corso usually will not warm up to people outside of its family. It does not do well with strangers or small animals. It is not the type of dog that's just going to want to lay around the house and do nothing all day. It is a working breed and needs regular daily activity and exercise. Otherwise, it can be quite destructive. So yeah, now Andrew has two of those. The two cane corsos were kept outside and chained up. 
So when Kwanda would walk from her house to her car, they were within just a few feet of her, and they looked pretty vicious, growling, barking, yanking at their chains in their attempts to lunge at her. But Kwanda was not going to let the situation get the best of her. She was afraid of the dogs, but rather than show fear and keep her distance, she decided to try to work on getting them to be friendly with her. In a little side note, I kind of did the same thing. Not exactly, but I wasn't dealing with mastiffs. Back in 2013, I took a job babysitting three toddlers, two siblings and their cousin. Out in the backyard, the family had a pit bull, and she did not like strangers at all. The door that led to the backyard also had a metal security door, so I could open it and the dog and I could see and hear each other through it, but it was vicious and lunged at the security door whenever I opened the regular door. But I wanted the dog to get used to me in case something happened with the house or the dog accidentally got out or got inside the house. I'd be the only adult there with three babies. It made me nervous to not have the dog under control. So I started bringing a little baggie of sliced deli turkey every day. At first, I let her sniff the food through the security door. Eventually, I started cracking the door open just enough to get my hand through and giving her the command to sit, which she did, and then I would toss her the turkey. It took about a month for her to stop charging at the door when I opened it to instead trotting over and wagging her tail happy to see me. Eventually, I was able to bring her into the house so the kids could play with her. I felt bad for the dog because she was outside all the time, but I was determined to get this dog to not want to attack me come hell or high water, and I finally did. But I don't think this was going to work out very well for the breed of dog that Klonda was dealing with, but it was pretty much what she began doing. The dogs were chained up all the time. She sometimes would hear them whimpering, and she figured like the puppies that Andrew had before, they were without food, so she would make them peanut butter sandwiches and toss them out to the dogs. She eventually tried going outside and bringing the food to them without throwing it, but the dogs did not show any less aggression towards her despite her efforts. But then, for some reason, once the dogs had become familiar with their home and the surroundings, they got acclimated to their area. Andrew actually let them off their chains and they were free to roam around his yard. And they didn't stay confined to the property. His yard was not fenced in. Neighbors would see the dogs roaming around freely. Klonda's cameras captured footage of them coming and going on and off the property. Then one afternoon, Klonda heard the sounds of the dogs and the cats fighting. She ran outside and one of her cats came running towards her. She scooped it up and just barely made it through her sliding glass door, slamming it shut just as the dog lunged into the glass, trying to get to her and to her cat. The viciousness and the aggression was unlike anything Klonda or Doug had ever seen before, with Doug describing it as being as if these dogs were possessed. And if the dogs weren't enough of a problem, Klonda also began to feel like Andrew and Julie's children were being neglected. She would often see them outside or home alone by themselves. They would be out in the street playing alone. One of them was a little bit older. He was around maybe 13 years old or so. 
but the other one that was often outside with him was like preschool aged. Now, some of the neighbors thought that Klonda was being a meddling neighbor, but she did go over to Andrew and Julie's house and she told Julie that she didn't think her kids should be playing out in the middle of the street like that, but Julie just slammed the door in her face. Some of the neighbors saw this as Klonda looking for trouble. She does work for the Department of Children and Family Services, so she might see things differently than others. Personally, I don't think kids playing in the street is that big of a deal. It's the parents' call, though, and I might sit in my house and be as judgy as I want to be, but I'd probably mind my own business and leave it alone. To me, if the parents don't care, then why should I? And besides... The dogs roaming the neighborhood freely and off-leash should have been the bigger concern. That is something that I would absolutely report. Those dogs could kill somebody. So I'm not exactly sure why Klonda would go over there and make a big stink about her kids playing in the street, but not the pair of cane corsos roaming the streets. So to that point, I might agree with the neighbors who would say that was Klonda stirring the pot when Julie slammed the door on her. Klonda decided that she would file a report of suspected child neglect with Child Protective Services. Klonda's report triggered a visit from CPS. If Andrew was angry before, now he was really, really pissed after that. When Klonda arrived home from work that afternoon, Andrew had been riding up and down the street on his ATV. He spotted her and drove up behind her. With his engines roaring, he began yelling at her with his ATV right on her heels, screaming about what's her problem, what's the deal with his kids, who does she think she is. Klonda kept walking and ignoring him as she just tried to hurry into her house. He continued to yell, trying to get her to answer up to what he believed she did. Kept asking her, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you calling Child Protective Services on my kids? What do you have against me? I'm talking to you, cat lady. Answer me. I'm a good dad. She finally got into her house and slammed the door shut, but he continued shouting. He got off his ATV and began slamming his hands against her window, yelling and screaming that she had no right. He takes good care of his children. How dare she? She doesn't have kids. What the F does she know about anything? And before long, Julie came out of the house along with her oldest son. And while Andrew carried on with the yelling, he finally issued a threat that one way or another, he was going to make her go away. And he was going to start by making her cats go away first. And he actually began making good on that threat. Klonda's cats were starting to turn up dead. She came home from work shortly after that confrontation to find two of her cats that appeared as though they had been mauled to death. She was certain that they were killed by Andrew's cane corsos. Klonda's fear of her neighbors and their dogs intensified worse than ever. Because for Klonda, there did not seem to be any chance of this getting any better, not at the rate that they were going. As for either one of them possibly moving out of the neighborhood, yeah, that was not happening. Both of them were very proud homeowners, and neither one of them intended on going anywhere. Klonda decided that the chain-link fence that she had Doug put up earlier to try and keep her cats in the yard wasn't enough, so she hired a contractor to put up a much taller, sturdier, wooden slat privacy fence. It was 8 feet, or 2.5 meters tall, and it went as far down her driveway as the city permitted. 
The fence not only enclosed her backyard, but it also was going to block Andrew from being able to drive his ATVs back to where he parked them in his yard. Remember, up until that point, Klonda had allowed him to ride on her driveway to access his yard. So when he saw the fence going up, he ran outside and began yelling at Klonda again, because I guess that's the only volume this guy has. What the hell are you doing? How am I supposed to get into my backyard? I can't park my ATVs anymore. And Klonda was like, I'm putting up my new fence in my driveway. And yeah, you know, wow, it seems like you have a problem now, don't you? So Andrew went and leashed his dogs and began standing outside very, very close to the property line where Klonda's contractor was working. He just stood there holding his dogs while they snarled and growled and barked and salivated and attempted to lunge towards this guy who was just there trying to do his job. The contractor eventually walked away, refusing to work under those conditions. Klonda tried in vain to find somebody else willing to finish the work, but anyone who came by to give an estimate was immediately driven off by the dogs. So Doug ended up finishing the work for Klonda, but there really wasn't anything that he was going to be able to do that would truly give Klonda peace of mind and comfort, the type of peace of mind and comfort that she had prior to Andrew and Julie moving into the house next door. He could tell that Klonda's whole entire personality had changed. She was no longer the person that he had reunited with after 20 years. Gone was the happiness. Gone was the dancing. In fact, Doug stated that once she stopped, Klonda never danced again. All she wanted to do was sit in front of her computer screen and watch her cameras. Andrew would often continue to come and go from his backyard and walk up and down her driveway with his two dogs by his side just to aggravate her just to make his presence known, just to be menacing. And it was working. Klonda obsessed over watching every move that he made, every time he crossed onto her property. Doug again made the suggestion that maybe she should move, but she wasn't about to do that. She felt like Andrew and Julie were the ones that should move, not her. She had been there many, many more years than they had been. She wouldn't even entertain the idea of it. Because for her, nobody was going to force her out of her own home. In order to try and keep Andrew off of her property, Klonda went down to the courthouse and filed for a restraining order against him. When her case was brought before a judge on January 7, 2013, that hearing was filmed, but I was only able to see a short clip of it. I looked around for the whole hearing with no luck. In her filing, Klonda indicated that she was living under this constant threat from Andrew and his dogs, that they killed two of her cats, and that she was in fear for her safety. However, when Andrew testified, he gave a completely different perspective as to how he saw things, stating, We have more or less a property line issue. There's no threats going on. There's nothing. Nobody's life is in danger or anything of that nature. He also told the court that Klonda's fence was built on his property and that is the only issue at hand. The judge ended up ruling against Klonda and denied her application for the restraining order. As Klonda gathered up her stuff, she told the judge that she can't live like this and all the judge had to say was to exit the court please. 
With Kwanda having her restraining order denied, she sank further into a deep sadness and depression. This now was worse than ever for her. She had already been feeling as if the community had not sided with her, and now the justice system was failing her too. It troubled her immensely, that feeling that nobody was willing to help her, that she was being made to live in fear for her life and for the lives of her beloved cats, and nobody cared. It was just about around the same time as the restraining order hearing that Andrew and Julie found themselves under investigation with Child Protective Services again when their youngest child, who was by then two years old, had apparently fallen down the stairs. If you saw anything about this on the Investigation Discovery Channel, this case that we're talking about today, then you may have seen the neighbors interviewed about this incident. It was said that this child fell down some steps. In other places, I read that it was stairs, which are not really the same thing to me. Steps would be what you would take to get up onto the porch of the house, and the stairs would have been a staircase. The neighbor said that the child had suffered a very severe brain injury and ended up in a coma. While delving deeper into this aspect of the story, it became clear to me that these children were not biologically Andrews. They were Julie's children. I also became fairly certain that Andrew did not work outside the home. His job was taking care of the kids while Julie worked and to go around menacingly on his ATVs or with his dogs. Based on the information I found in the news reports about this, this fall that this child had, it highlighted Andrew's criminal history. When I said that he was in sales at the beginning of this, I didn't jump to any conclusions, but now I'm pretty sure that they meant drug dealing. The two-year-old was rushed to the hospital and Andrew was arrested as he was suspected of child endangerment. So one of the neighbors interviewed about this stated that they were gathering around to see the child taken away by ambulance and Andrew taken into custody. And she overheard Klonda making the remark that she would bet anything that he wasn't watching his child properly. Like she had suspected previously and tried to make a report about it that this was all his fault that his child was hurt. And the neighbors kind of bristled at the notion, at the suggestion that Klonda was making, insinuating that Andrew was neglectful and an irresponsible parent. The neighbors continued to side with Andrew more than with Klonda because they viewed Klonda as like this neighborhood busybody that had no business being up in everybody else's business. They did not like Klonda, and they really didn't like that she was making these off-the-cuff remarks about something that she really didn't know about. They figured she was making all of these really serious accusations with no foundation. Whatever it was about Klonda, whatever it was about her ways or her energy, she just turned people off. And at the time that they were interviewed about this, though, this was still about a year out from what ended up happening in this story. And I'll come back to this child endangerment case that Andrew had found himself mired in. So the child underwent several surgeries and the recovery process would take a very long time. She was hospitalized for several months before she was finally able to come home. But it was like starting all over again with a brand new newborn baby. She had to relearn everything from crawling to walking and talking and feeding herself. 
the whole two years of her life had been erased. Following the child's fall and serious injuries and Andrew being investigated for a child endangerment, the remaining children were removed from the home and placed into foster care. As far as Andrew was concerned, the only person to be blamed for him being on Child Protective Services radar was Klonda, especially since she worked for the DPSS. His anger and annoyance over her had turned into an intense hatred. The problem was no longer festering, it was about to explode. And Andrew had not a problem letting Klonda know. Since she's been talking about him to the people at her work with the county, she was going to be sorry and he was going to make her pay. And every time he confronted her or saw her walking up and down her driveway coming and going from work, he would have his dogs with him. It got to a point where the only time Klonda would ever leave her house anymore was when she had to go to work or had to go down and take care of the cats at the other house that she purchased for them. It felt like her home was under siege by Andrew and his King Corsos. For the next year, from the time that child was injured until the point when the story reaches its climax, it was an entire year that had passed with Andrew's whole mission being to terrorize Klonda with his dogs. She had so much video footage of his dogs running free in and out of her yard, up and down her driveway, all around her house, stalking and circling as if they were just waiting for her to come outside. She spent that entire year trapped in her home, obsessed with watching those cameras. In that span of one year, she called both the Montgomery County Animal Resource Center and the Dayton Police Department more than two dozen times trying to get somebody to do something about Andrew's dogs to at least compel him to keep them contained in his own yard, but neither the police nor animal control did anything about Andrew or his dogs. The county field activity record that logged each complaint is 26 pages long, and they literally did nothing. For whatever reason, this community continued to ignore Klonda, and the most confusing thing about all of this is that Klonda did all the things that are typically recommended in situations like this. She made reports. She made the phone calls. She had video evidence of the dogs roaming free in her yard and on her driveway and on the street. There are recordings of her phone calls, of voicemails that she left, and the desperation in her voice is so obvious. I was almost mauled by them. I'm done. I'm hyperventilating. It's time for this to end. It's gone on long enough. She did the things that she was supposed to do, but none of the agencies took the initiative to stop and listen to what this woman was trying to tell them, that these dogs are deadly. Somebody was going to get killed if nobody intervened. And from what I was able to glean, everybody thinks that Klonda is just some crazy, wacky old cat lady that just gets off on being an annoyance to everybody. Klonda had become so fearful and paranoid that she even began refusing to let her boyfriend Doug into her house. She wasn't answering his phone calls. She kept all of her lights off. But despite all of her fears and anxiety, she was not going to let that stop her from doing her job or taking care of the cats in the house up the street. 
And that's exactly what Klonda got up to do in the pre-dawn hours of February 7, 2014. Up until that morning, you could pretty much set your watch by Klonda's routine during the week. She would wake up at 4 a.m., she would go over to the cat house, and when she was done taking care of feeding them and cleaning out their litter box, she would go to work the same time every single day, and she would arrive home from work at the same time every single afternoon. And that was basically all she ever left her house for in that year since Andrew made that ominous threat that she would be sorry for ever calling CPS on him. Never mind the fact that he's the one that allegedly put his child in harm's way by failing to properly supervise her, which led to this alleged fall down the stairs. That had nothing to do with Klonda, yet Andrew placed the blame squarely on her for the remainder of his kids being removed from the home. But there was something different about the morning of February 7th. First off, Klonda had her surveillance cameras running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They were never ever turned off since the day she had them installed. But for some reason that morning, the video feed from her cameras weren't recording. This particular morning was also very, very cold outside. Nobody is ever out, not at that hour, not in those temperatures. But that morning when Klonda stepped outside to walk down to the cat house, both of Andrew's dogs were out there and off their chains. By the time Klonda realized that they were loose, they had her cornered within the confines of that eight-foot fence that she had built to protect herself from those very dogs. And it had actually become the thing that would have her trapped. Both dogs attacked Klonda, and her fate was much like that of Diane Whipple. Massive injuries all over her body, deep wounds and lacerations about her head and neck. All of her clothing was ripped from her body. She was ultimately left dead out towards the bottom of her driveway next to her beloved house. It wouldn't be until later on that morning after the sun rose that a person walking by on foot noticed first the pools of blood and the shreds of clothing strewn about the sidewalk that Klonda was discovered naked and mauled to death. When investigators arrived, even they had a hard time taking in the gruesomeness of the scene. Klonda suffered a very long and painful death out there outside in the freezing cold, alone and naked. As investigators arrived and started talking to people, they came to find that there was at least one ear witness who heard screams shortly after four in the morning, that the screaming had continued to almost 4.30 at least 20 minutes, and nobody, not that ear witness, nor anybody else who may have heard the commotion, bothered to pick up the phone and call police. Klonda died a very slow, torturous, painful death, and it was a death that she had feared for almost two years since the day that Andrew brought those cane corsos home. It was at least a couple of hours before Klonda was discovered Sunrise in February is around 6.30 in the morning. Andrew and Julie's bedroom window is situated just steps away from where the attack occurred, 
which caused people to believe that not only did they let their dogs out that morning to roam free, but they also must have heard Klonda screams and the growling and barking and snarling of the dogs, but still did nothing to come to Klonda's aid. When officers made their way up the bloodstained driveway, they were confronted by the dogs, who were still loose, so they shot both of them dead. From there, they went next door and arrested both Andrew and Julie. Andrew resisted being arrested because he wanted to know, demanded to know where his dogs were. Once he was informed that they had been shot and killed, he refused to speak to or cooperate with any of the investigators. The neighbors were left absolutely stunned that something like this could happen. They could not believe that those dogs actually killed Klonda. The problem was, is that nobody listened to her. Klonda tried to get help, but nobody wanted to pay attention to this crazy old cat lady. Andrew and Julie were both charged with reckless homicide, which carries a sentence of three years in prison. While investigators attempted to pull surveillance footage from Klonda's cameras, they soon realized that the feed had been interrupted because of a loose cord that was connected to the DVR. So from what I understand, Klonda was still able to see what was going on outside the home at the time, but nothing was being recorded and preserved. And because the video of the dogs being let out of the house and attacking Klonda was not available, it was very difficult to make the argument that it was Andrew and Julie who let the dogs out intentionally. Because of the lack of evidence against Andrew and Julie, the Montgomery County Grand Jury failed to indict them, so they were charged at the city level instead with a failure to control their animals. The two of them each pleaded no contest to the charges, which were a misdemeanor. Andrew was sentenced to 150 days in jail, and Julie was sentenced to 90 days. In the aftermath of this, the Klonda-Ritchie Animal Act was passed, which strengthened laws and penalties for dog owners in the state of Ohio. The bill now requires that owners of dogs deemed dangerous to be registered in a database, and it would extend the amount of time that a convicted felon cannot own any dogs from three years to five years. In March of 2020, the family of Klonda-Ritchie was awarded a settlement of $3.5 million for a lawsuit that they brought against the Montgomery County Animal Control, and it became the largest settlement on record brought against any animal control agency for a dog attack in the United States. Andrew's legal problems weren't over once he was finished serving his 150 days for his dogs having killed Klonda. Remember the incident with his girlfriend's two-year-old sustaining a severe head injury while on his watch? Well, I kept referring to that as an alleged fall down the stairs because that isn't what was found to have happened. It took several years for this case to work its way through the system, but in April of 2017, Andrew Nason was found guilty of child abuse that led to the head injuries. That fall down the stairs, whether or not it happened, it was a cover. And that child, she may have tumbled down the stairs, but it wasn't accidental. Her injuries were a direct result of having been abused. A Montgomery County jury found Andrew guilty of felony assault and two counts of child endangerment, and he was sentenced to five years in prison. The injuries Andrew inflicted upon Julie Custer's two-year-old left her with permanent brain damage, 
that will require her to be living with assistance for the rest of her life. Today, Andrew is still incarcerated at the Northeast Ohio Correctional Center. He was up for parole in November of 2021, but he was denied. He is scheduled for release on March 10th, 2023. And that, my dreamers, was the story of Klonda Ritchie. I want to thank you all for listening to this episode. This was a tough case with an outcome that feels really unfair and sad. The penalties for what this man did don't really seem to fit the crime and all the trauma and the destruction that was caused by Andrew Nason. I don't know if his time in prison will work to rehabilitate him but he's going to be free again in just a matter of months from now. And hopefully he doesn't get away with owning any more vicious dogs as he's not supposed to for at least five years. And for whomever he happens to charm next, hopefully she does a little bit of Googling around to see that he is not safe to be left in charge of children. Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help support California Dreaming by spreading the word about us, recommending, leaving reviews, and joining Patreon if you want some extra content. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>